Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Well, welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm Elaine miller Karras, your host today. And I just want to say as we get started, I want to do a call out to all of our friends, colleagues, and individuals that we know from Colorado. And we just want to send them, you know, our thoughts, our prayers that you're in our heart. And if there's something that the Trauma Resource Institute might be able to do to help um, all the folks up there, we understand that a thousand people lost their, their homes. And I think there are 200 other structures that were lost and that we really are thinking about them today. And here we are, you know, January 3rd, starting the year, and I had planned to begin the new year with a discussion of the important themes beautifully discussed in 2015 by Archbishop Desmond Tutu and His Holiness the Dalai Lama expressed in their work, The Book of Joy, with my friend and colleague, my guest today, Rena Patel, another licensed clinical social worker. And then sadly, um, Desmond Tutu died on December 26th. So, Rena and I spoke and we thought, oh my goodness, his death, of course, does not um, diminish his message. We decided there's no better way to memorialize him than to remind all of us of his message in today's show. And before we get started, I want to share a little bit about Rena Patel. First of all, she earned her master's in social work in 2009 from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Mumbai, India, as a Rotary Foundation Ambassador Scholar from the, from the USA to India. And I have to say, I was very lucky to go to Mumbai with Rena in 2019, where we um, trained some of the social workers there in the Community Resiliency Model. But after she earned her MSW, Ms. P- Ms. Patel worked in a variety of community mental health settings, including both the San Carlos Apache and Pascoyaki tribal nations, the United States Navy in Naples, Italy, and with organizations in San Diego and Tucson, Arizona, focusing on homelessness and substance use. Ms. Patel taught as a faculty associate for Arizona State University School of Social Work and most recently has taught courses in diversity and oppression. Ms. Patel identifies as a first-generation South Asian American woman with roots in, am I saying this right, Gujarat, India? Gujarat. Yeah. Good. Okay, you'll have to, you know, help me be more pronunciation specific. Um, she's the director of patient training for the Trauma Resource Institute, and has been instrumental in creating Tri's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Um, as I said, Rena and I, uh, we traveled to New Delhi and Mumbai in 2019, where we both were honored to be in the presence of His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the launch of the Sea Learning Program. So today, what we want to do is to create a dialogue between the two of us to the question posed by His Holiness Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. This has never been more important, I think, than in our world today, is how do we attain joy in such a sorrowful world? We just talked about what happened in Colorado, but we, I talked to another friend today who lives in Denver who shared with me that his um, 
His sister had died from COVID um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma in August. Our dear friend, Michael Sapp's mother died the day before uh, Christmas Eve on the 23rd. There's just been so much sorrow. And I mean, I know many of you that are listening have had your own sorrows. Um, so it's important that we also talk about, I guess, what else is true. And we want to share a little bit as we get started with uh, some elements about Reverend Tutu's life. So after Nelson Mandela was sworn in as president, he asked Desmond Tutu to chair South Africa's landmark Truth and Reconciliation Commission to investigate the crimes of apartheid. For, our, for the archbishop, the horrific testimony was traumatic, and his empathy and compassion were immeasurable as he wept with the survivors. He heartfully insisted that we humans were meant for goodness. He said, one has been deeply humbled by those we have often called the ordinary people, deeply humbled in their resilience at the magnanimity of spirit that they have shown. He also shared this experience never shook his faith in God. Perhaps if one listened only to the atrocities and account of the atrocities that people committed, but we were constantly um, being boiled over by the extent to which people were ready and willing to forgive. You know, he said he called himself the prisoner of hope and went on to say, there is no situation from which God cannot extract good. Evil, death, oppression, injustice, these can never again have the last word, despite all appearances to the contrary. So today we celebrate the life of Desmond Tutu and we'll remember the conversation between these two amazing Nobel Prize winners, one, the exile spiritual leader of the Tibetan people, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and the other, Reverend Tutu, who was the leading spokesperson for the rights of Black South Africans who drew national attention to the horrors of apartheid. They spent a week together in 2015 reflecting about their lives, sharing their wisdom. Oh, my gosh, they were so humorous, etched with their humor, compassion, spirit, and I would have to say spunk. And many years ago, while I was attending um, the Skoll Conference at Oxford, I had the privilege to see Reverend Tutu in person being interviewed by his daughter. And he had a wonderful spirit that lit up the auditorium, I have to say. Um, during the conversation, His Holiness and Reverend Tutu agreed on the positive qualities that can help all of us experience joy, not as fleeting emotion, but as an enduring part of life. So we're going to address some of the pillars of joy. There are eight pillars of joy that they outline in the book, the book of joy. And as Rena and I were preparing, we realized we, didn't, we probably are not going to get to all eight, but we'll try to get to as many as possible. So Rena, my dear friend and colleague, as we begin, what are your reflections about Desmond Tutu and his life's work? Oh, Elaine, wow, just even hearing you talk about um, Archbishop Tutu and, and just some of his, his words, the powerful words that he, he left with us, um, you know, as in reading this book and thinking about the life that he led, you know, I, I think about the example that he was for all of us, you know, there often people call him, you know, a moral voice for humanity. And, you know, there was a quote that really stood out to me from the book that I would like to read. Um, he said, you show your humanity by how you see yourself, not as apart from others, but from your connection to others. And in almost every story he told, he led with that. He led with the connection to the other, to the other person, to the other human being across from him, and what helped 
keep him connected to other people that were different from him. I think that's such an example um, for how we can lead our lives today. Um, he was also such a humble man. And I think that was something else that really stood out to me about his life is that he walked with such humility, you know, and it was, and, and, and somebody who is such a moral leader, such a huge spiritual leader in our world um, who could demand that type of um, opulence. He, he never once wanted any of that, right? He just wanted to be treated as any other fellow person on this earth. Um, so really, that's really what stood, stands out to me is just the kind of example he was for all of us. Um, and the kind of joy that he led with his life amidst all of the suffering that he witnessed, that he led people through, um, that he was still so joyful and playful in spirit. He was, and he had a great giggle. I mean, that was, I think, one of the most, uh, this giggle in this wonderful way that he would smile, that you couldn't help but smile back at him because it was so infectious. Um, but, you know, there was something else that, I, that, you know, that you shared with me, too, that you said had struck you, and that was that he referred to something called righteous anger. Could you say a little bit about yeah. what that means? Yeah. So, he talked about righteous anger, and I thought this was so interesting. He, um, you know, of course, during the, uh, you know, during the apartheid and what his role in and really helping to mobilize his people, he talked about this idea of righteous anger, that it wasn't anger that was meant to harm other people. It was anger in wanting to make sure harm wasn't done to others. And so, having that anger, uh, not righteous anger, that really led, he said, to justice, really, and really not wanting to see his fellow humans being hurt or harmed. And that was the anger that motivated the justice and the, and the, and the fight for equality and for freedom and for liberation and for peace and love. So, it was just a beautiful way to think about how many of us have experienced and talked about righteous anger and how he really demonstrated that in such a peaceful way, in a way that um, didn't mute what the oppression that was going on by any means, but really um, gave him that, gave him that fire, that's that what the energy to really lead such a powerful movement. Well, and I, and I love the way that you said the energy to lead such a powerful movement, because I think we often, I've often gotten this question when I've brought the community resiliency model to different um, theaters around the world. I can remember one woman in Turkey who said, you know, I don't want to be in the resilient zone because I have to be angry about what's happening to the um, Syrian refugees at the border. And I think what I said back to her is that if we're the, in that kind of anger that's not righteous, that's when we can sometimes that anger could spill over to sometimes being more violent and aggressive. And oftentimes when we do that, people can't hear us in the same way. But when we have the righteous anger that's connected to justice, um, what you said, the spreading of love, hope, forgiveness, that that's a different kind of anger, an anger that we don't want to lose because that anger has prompted many of us to change systems, to change the world. Um, and if we didn't have that righteous anger, like what happened in South Africa, apartheid might still be there. And there's so many different elements in our world right now. And I think if I always try to think about his legacy, is, you know, as our, list, as our listeners are hearing us talk about this, is there something that you feel righteously angry about that you might want to be that person who's going to stand up for something that, again, comes from the spirit of nonviolence to change something that is wrong? And I think that's certainly what he, what he leaves with me, which is also in the spirit as we enter January of Martin Luther King, when we think about, you know, movements of nonviolence that was also um, embraced by, by Desmond Tutu. And of course, definitely by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So, any other reflections before we move into the first pillar 
Um, anything else you want to say, Rena? You know, I the other piece that comes to me is that um, he he really also exemplified what it meant to transcend those systems, those artificial borders and systems that, that are created often to separate us. Um, I think about his relationship with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and how they describe their relationship, um, both um, devout in their faiths and and still yet so loving and respectful towards one another. And it, and it seemed as if um, the Archbishop Tutu did this in his life with almost everyone that he met, um, and even people that may have hurt and harmed other people as well, as we know from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that he, he showed so much grace um, for, those, for those individuals. Um, yeah. Yes, and having that view, you know, one Christian, one Buddhist, and how they could come together, certainly in love and admiration and respect for each other, and talk about some of the greatest issues of the world, and come up with these eight pillars of what we all can think about, I think, and we hope that, you know, we're going to talk about at least three of them today, we're going to see if we can get through more, but what we're going to do is Rena and I are going to have a continued conversation, so um, we will talk about, we're going to eventually talk about all eight pillars, um, and we'll, and Rena will come back again each month until we have been able to have this dialogue between the two of us regarding the importance of how we can embrace these eight pillars in our lives and really kind of come forward with the same spirit of Desmond Tutu and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Again, when we talk about two such spiritual leaders and such humble men, how we can also lead with our humility. And and actually, humility is one one of the pillars. So, as we move through the the very first pillar is perspective, and I want to say a little bit about that, and then um, um, Rena and I will talk a little bit more. So, the Dalai Lama recommends studying each situation from different perspectives. When we view a situation from a different perspective, actions can have more clarity. I think we've heard the old adage, if you know, walk in someone's moccasins, um, that will also give you perspective to, you know, as close as you can be to have a perspective of another person that might be different from your own. So the same event can appear as a tragedy or as an opportunity. And we are invited to reflect on the learning to find the the learning and failure and also to find the joy and pain. In the Trauma Resource Institute, we we talk about the movement to the we. And when we focus only on the self, that perspective is limited. And so it's imperative for all of us to try to widen our lens and say, well, if that was me, if that was my family, if that was my community, um, if that was my country, what would it be that I would want? I guess that comes back to the, you know, the golden, the golden rule in Christianity to do unto others as we would have done unto ourselves. Um, that is so imbued also in perspective. So a question for you, Rena. How have your experiences living and studying social work in India influenced your understanding of perspective? Significantly, Elaine, I think, um, you know, in thinking about this particular pillar, you know, one of the things that I really took away from it is, you know, how do we, as you mentioned earlier, how do we widen our perspective to include so much more than our own suffering and our own self, um, which can really be difficult to do, um, especially in times that are difficult or in turmoil. And I think when I went to India as, as a Rotary Scholar, and I was fortunate to go and to, to do my master's there, um, there's so much about that experience that really shook my entire world. My, my family's from India, from Gujarat specifically. Um, and 
you know, I, I didn't know what it was like to be there. I had been born and raised in the United States. And I said, I want to go back and I want to see where my family is from. I want to experience it, but I want to experience it in this lens as a social worker, because I really feel strongly about, you know, that the kind of work social workers do interacting with systems and people and communities. Um, and I thought that would be the best way to learn. While I was there, um, there was, uh, and, I, and I think I've shared this with you, Elaine, um, my, when I did my master's thesis, I um, did not realize there had been a genocide in Gujarat, India in 2002, and um, I was really intrigued by what had happened in, in this place of my ancestral homeland, and I decided to, you know, really to dig deep and to see what I, you know, what I could find, and what I realized was that there was, you know, I, my family, my ethnic background as a Hindu Gujarati were very much uh, part of a genocide that had happened against the Muslim Gujarati community there. Um, tens of thousands of people and communities were displaced, businesses were burned down, and really the Muslim community in Gujarat were pushed to the peripheries um, of, of the cities. And and so I thought, I, this is what I need to, to spend my thesis on, as I, I want to go see what type of impact um, this ethnic political violence had on the youth Specifically, what I ended up studying was the justice-seeking behavior of the youth and well-being factors of the youth. Um, and this was in 2008 and 2009 that I did this. And I, what I, and I really want to speak to what happened when I got there. When I got there, my last name was synonymous with those of the perpetrators of the violence in the communities. There was no hiding behind that. You know, they, they could, I, I was honest with the communities I went to. I knew there were no other Hindus around for miles and miles. And so there was a bit of courage <laughs> that was taken I for me to, to go. Oh my goodness, I can imagine. Um, but I've known, known, known yeah. you to be a courageous person. <laughs> so I'm not surprised that you went there. I, I went there. I mean, and it's nothing compared to the courage that these families and these children had to endure um, with the displacement and the things that had happened to them. Um, and when I got there, I think what I was struck by the most, and I think about this in terms of our pillars and the perspective one specifically, is they were so, so generous and kind um, to me as somebody who um, was identified, you know, as part of the, the, the group of the oppressor, right? The group that had done harm. Mm -hmm. And specifically, the children were so gracious mm -hmm. and full of joy. I really could say it was full of joy and they had really lost everything. There were no schools. Many of the places had no running water. People were still living in these relief camps even six years after this violence. But the kids took me by the hand and they showed me every part of their lives with such joy, with no expectation of anything in return from me. Um, and so, you know, I think about that perspective and what I learned from those children and really what that did to me as a social worker coming back to the United States and having similar experiences and I think that's really helped me with my own trauma history and even what that means for my own life to be able to be given that type of perspective, you know, to, to know, you know, that you're not alone in the world and you're suffering and that there's, there's so much out there that's so much bigger than us. Well, even as you start talking about this too, I think, gosh, in the eyes of, of the children there or the other adults that may have seen you as representing the perpetrators of the, of the genocide and then to embrace you in, in, in kind of a loving joy and saying, learn about our community. And isn't that the way that we need to go forward in terms of creating bridges Absolutely. where there has been so much divisiveness in the world? So I, that's just such a, a beautiful example. 
Um, now, I know that you were thinking about a question you wanted to ask me. Absolutely. Um, okay, so all right. So I'll try <laughs> to do my best. So what's the question? So Elaine, both uh, the His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu discuss the importance of our common humanity throughout the book. Um, as author Douglas Abrams highlights that although we're biologically wired to cooperate with one another for survival, um, we're more wary of others that don't look like us, that may look different than us. He says that's really the root of prejudice, is, is yeah. that we're not necessarily wired to do that. Um, these great spiritual leaders, however, discuss how essential seeing ourselves as one and not separate is, is essential for the continuation of our, of our humanity. How do you think we can cultivate this common humanity amongst groups that are different from our own? Oh, my goodness. That's such a difficult question. Well, I'll do my best. Well, first of all, I think that I've, I've always kind of looked at life in this way. And I think it has to do with my childhood. And, you know, you and I have had many conversations about this. Is my mom came to this country from El Salvador. And um, she and my grandmother lived in San Francisco. My mom came as kind of the Brosie the Riveter during a time during the war when they needed more workers. And, you know, having my mom's influence and my grandmother's influence and visiting in El Salvador and, and knowing that we had so many people in my family, all different colors, you know, from very light skinned like myself to, and my mother was light skinned as well, to Moreno like my grandmother and to very dark skinned. Um, I never thought about someone who lo was looking, <laughs> I know this sounds, maybe sounds interesting. I never thought about someone who looked differently from me in terms of skin color as not being like me. And I think that was such just embedded in, in me as a child. And so then, of course, as you grow and you realize what His Holiness and, and uh, Desmond Tutu talked about is that when we, we see people as being different from us, that sometimes we create divisiveness. And you can see that too when people are, it's not necessarily the way that we look. I certainly saw this in Northern Ireland when that pe person may um, look exactly the same, but the looking is different in terms of religion, someone being Catholic and someone being Protestant, for example. And so, but I guess what I've seen, and actually you helped me with this, Reno, when we were in India, and I was, I was grappling with this issue of trying to figure out how best to come forward in the world in embracing diversity and inclusion and, and feeling that there was some fallback from some people um, who had come to me and said, are you really repre representing what you're saying you're representing in the world? And, and I don't know if you remember, but you said to me, Elaine, you know, of all the organizations I know, I think you've probably trained more people in different colors and different languages and different ethnicities and religions than any other nonprofit that I know of. And I, I remember saying, oh, I hadn't thought about that, but I was thinking about, oh, in Haiti, in Nepal, in the Philippines, in China, the different places that I've gone. And what I've seen most importantly is exactly what you talked about with the children that embraced you. When I've gone into different countries, People have sometimes looked at me suspiciously, which I think is probably a healthy wariness of who is this person and what are they coming to share? But that was only sometimes a moment, a moment. And then all of a sudden, there is this commonality that develops between us. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the way that we come forward with a smile, or maybe there's a way that we come forward with saying we're trying to share something that is about all humanity. And I know that you've heard me say this before, and I think our listeners who've listened to the show before is that 
We are all designed in the same way. We have this amazing nervous system. We, um, I've asked the same six questions all over the world, and I get the same answers about, you know, what is the suffering that you've seen, and how has it shown up with your emotions and your body and your thoughts? And people tell me the same thing, whether I'm in California or I'm in Tibet, I mean, or I'm in Nepal. So I'm thinking, well, how can that be that we're so separate when we're so similar? And so that's not to say I don't absolutely respect our differences and embrace our differences, because that also enlightens us. But I think what I have seen more commonly throughout the world is how when we take away those, uh, the barriers that sometimes exist and come person to person, that we see ourselves in the other. And I think that's why perspective is so important, mm. right? Is we, are, we see ourselves in the other. We see a person who wants to go to shop and not have to worry about my shopping center being blown up. We want to be able to go to our temple, our synagogue, our church, and we want to be able to uh, have our, relig- our religious practices um, without fear. Uh, we want to raise our children and love them. We want, you know, not to be worried about that we don't have a house to live in or food to feed our family. All these things are so common. And yet we know there's disparities in the world. But when we see our common humanity, then how can we not help um, our, fellow, our fellow person, no matter where we are on the globe? And I think probably the thing that's, um, that <laughs> sometimes I think in the past, when I was much younger, when something, when I'd see something in the news, it was like something happened over there. Now I feel like when something happened, it happens to me personally. And I've certainly felt this way very much when I saw the faces of starving children in Afghanistan. And I'm, I want to say, well, how can I help them? I actually, there's an Afghani restaurant in, in Claremont, and I went and spoke to the owner and I said, you know, if there's any way that I can somehow contribute money to help these children, he actually gave me a website to go to and I contributed some money, but I, but I didn't always see it as so personal as yeah. I do now. But I think it was this, you know, this uh, common humanity that, I'm, that, you know, you were asking me about that I've seen all over the world. I don't know, any reflection upon that before we take our break. (laughs) um, Desmond Tutu talked about that concept of Ubuntu, right? I am am because we are, that interdependence that you're talking about. um, You know, and it's such a beautiful concept that your heart is aching for somebody across the world, right? And that is really what he was talking about, um, is that we we are a collective in that way. We, We have to be connected. We are connected to one another. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, you also brought something else up that I'd love for you to share about what the astronauts have seen. Would you share that? Yeah, the, the overview effect. I thought this was so neat that when astronauts come back from space, they, ha- they talk about this overview effect that um, they report that once they take a glimpse of Earth from space and they see this blue ball in the midst of this vast black sky, <laughs> lacking our human-made borders, they never looked at their personal or national interests in the same way again. And it's called yeah. the overview effect. And so that to me, we talk about perspective, right? That you see ourselves as, as, as we see ourselves as one across the world. Um, and that's certainly, I think, the work that I've tried to do in my life 
And I think that I also saw in you very, when I first met you many years ago, that kind of having that common perspective, because I don't know if you remember, but I think you might do. I think I remind you every now and then I said, you know, we're going to work one day together. I'm not sure what exactly, but we will. <laughs> I don't know if you believed me then. Maybe you believe me now. Still don't think I believe you, Elaine. That's <laughs> Well, I just, um, so we have, so listen to this, we've only gotten through one pillar. We have two more pillars that we want to talk about after the break. So we're going to take a short break um, and then we're going to come back again with um, dear Rena Patel, a wonderful social worker in the world. And I just love that you're the director of education and training at the Trauma Resource Institute, uh, Rena. Um, You bring so much wisdom to that role, and we will have more dialogue about the next two pillars that we're going to highlight today. And I think we're going to be talking about generosity and gratitude. Gratitude, yes. Yes. So we'll be back in a few moments with Rena Patel. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller-Karis. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Well, welcome back. This is Elaine Miller-Karis with Rena Patel, my guest today. And we're talking about the eight pillars of joy. We're going to talk about three pillars today. We just finished talking about perspective, which is pillar number one, but we're going to go to pillar number two. We, when Rena and I were talking about um, which pillars we wanted to highlight for this beginning of the year, we thought it would be good to talk about gratitude and generosity and maybe also share some practices that our listeners can do on how they can cultivate the joy in their life. So let's talk a little bit about gratitude now. It's fundamental to joy because it can quite literally allow us to generate our own happiness. And we'll go, well, what does that mean? The Dalai Lama was grateful, for example, for the opportunities he found in exile. Exile, as he says, brought me closer to reality, he said. When you are in difficult situations, there is no room for pretense. You must confront reality as it is. And further, Christ teaches us to love our enemies. Buddhism invites us to be thankful for them, referring to our enemies as our most precious spiritual teachers. So grateful people were found in studies to be more empathetic and generous. In other studies, grateful people were found to have had more vitality, to have exercised more, to be more likely to have made progress on goals they had set for themselves. That last point is important because it confirms that seeing the world with grateful eyes motivates us rather than lulls us into complacency. So the joy that the Dalai Lama still was able to find in exile did not in any way diminish his efforts to oppose the Chinese occupation of Tibet. Grateful people also reported less stress and fewer physical symptoms. And researchers believe that gratitude may stimulate the hypothalamus, which is a part of our our body that regulates stress. And the ventral tegmental region, which is a part of the reward circuitry that produces pleasure in the brain, smiling, a natural expression of gratitude, which we, you know, I certainly saw in his um, Desmond Tutu and also when didn't he smile a lot to his holiness the Dalai Lama, stimulates the response of neurotransmitters, serotonin which is right, kind of our natural antidepressant, and do- dopamine, which stimulates our reward centers, and endorphins are natural painkillers. It is not happiness that makes us grateful. It is gratefulness that makes us happy. So when we think about how we're going to cultivate joy, spending time and thinking about our gratitudes is a very important service, not only to humankind, to our families, to our community, but to ourselves. In the Tibetan tradition, monks are taught that the best way to create a good karma with a minimum of effort is to rejoice in good actions and those of others. Grateful people are also perceived as more generous, empathetic, and useful to people around them. So as we start, as we can, as we start with this particular uh, pillar, what is on your mind about it, Rina? Well, I I know that we're going to share with our our viewers um, a practice, and I have to say that. In reading this chapter and and, and understanding this pillar, um, it it resonated with me so deeply because I've been trying to practice in small ways a gratitude practice that I've been incorporating into my life. And um, I have found that when I pause to do that, even if it's for five minutes, it does have a profound effect on my nervous system, on my brain, on my body, on my perspective, really, and and can quickly reframe almost any situation that I encounter, which has been pretty 
incredible for me, honestly. And I, and you know, it may sound so simple, but hearing about what you just said about the hypothalamus and what that means and what that really does to our stress response, it makes so much sense because if I, if I pause to do a practice like this that I know we're going to share, um, I have seen a significant impact in just my day to day being able to do that. Um, well, and the other, the other part about this is we have a, a, a circuit in our brain that is about gratitude. And that kind of um, gratitude that we're talking about is is something that we can nourish, and act, and and as we practice it, it actually can make it stronger in terms of all those side effects that I just talked about. So there's so if you're sitting at home and you're thinking, oh, as you're hearing this, I've been sad, I've been this or that, I'm going to really invite you to start thinking about your gratitudes. And so we're going to ask you um, some things right now. So in in the book. Um, they, they, they talked about journaling for gratitude. And the specific daily practice would be at the end of each day. Although I know people that do it at the beginning of the day too, don't you, um, Rena? That sometimes they will start the yeah. day with gratitudes. I think you shared with me that that's what you do mm-hmm. at times. Yep. So, and that would be the first thing they suggest is recall three things from your day from which you can be thankful. So, Rena, I'm going to ask you right now, are there three things that you're thankful for at this moment Oh, yes. Um, I'm going to say uh, this. I have a heater next to me. So warmth, this warmth. Yes. Um, I'm being in relationship to you in this moment. I'm very grateful for that. Um, and I think for, for my, I'm going to pick my spouse. Um, he's been very, very supportive lately. And I'm just going to pick him as, you know, those are the three things that come to mind at this moment. And so, as you, as you say these three gratitudes, what they recommend is to write them down in a journal. And then this is, they don't add, they don't add this, but we're going to add it because we're, uh, we both believe in paying attention to sensations, is to then notice what happens as you write down your gratitudes, or even as you've said them out loud to me, Arena. Do you notice anything happening on the inside as you think about these three things that you've mentioned? Three I just took yes. a deep breath. I just yeah. took a, a deep breath. Um, I have a, a pleasant sensation of warmth in my fingers. Um, and I felt some openness happen actually in my, in my chest and shoulders. So I'm just going to invite you to notice that. And as our listeners are hearing Rena tell us about what she's noticing, as you may be thinking about your gratitudes as we're talking, to also notice what happens on the inside, because that's about you nourishing your nervous system. And it's, it's, it's so interesting. I was thinking about this this morning and, and um, I do, you know, I don't necessarily, I think about my gratitudes, but not in such a precise way. And I think I need to start doing this more regularly for myself as well. But I sat down, I was talking to my husband this morning and we have some work being done at our house. And I said, I just have to stop for, for just a moment and, you know, and ask and just let you know what I'm grateful for today. And maybe we can share. And so he was like thinking, oh my goodness, what's she asking me about? <laughs> and so <laughs> this may sound silly, but he, what, he was grateful for his fantasy uh, football team that's doing very well right now. And I thought, well, is that, would that count? Well, of course it can count. It doesn't necessarily need to be these, you know, spiritual things that, you know, or even a person. It was like, you know, he loves doing that. He gets much joy in doing that. And as he was, he was saying it out loud, you could just see him take that deep breath just like you did. So, you know, sometimes think about the, even the small things in life that maybe you don't think of, oh, well, that is, I am grateful that I actually now, right now, this moment have, um, 
um, uh, the ability to go in my kitchen and make a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think as you and I both have, have you know, uh, um, worked internationally, sometimes the things that we can take for granted when we've had privilege and then seeing when people don't have the same privileges we have, we can start to be grateful for that as well. And then it always leads me to the next thing. How could I help change the world so that more of the things that create well-being are available to others. I mean, it seems like there's a cascade of thoughts that happen Absolutely. when we start being grateful. I don't know. Does that make sense? Do you have anything to say it about does. that? Well, I have a question for you, Elaine. Yes, and it's okay. Good. <laughs> you started oh, to answer okay. it a little bit already. Did I already? Okay. What was but, what's the question? So, as we begin 2022, um, do you have any reflections on how you plan to integrate a gratitude practice um, more intentionally in your life? And, um, and I'm also curious on if there's any moments that you can recall um, in, in everything that you've built that you're, you're grateful for, that you're most grateful for? Well, you know, it's interesting that you should say today I had a, I had a, I had a, um, a conversation, actually you were there, um, with the Arab American Family Resource Center in, in, uh, in New York City. And I hadn't talked to them since way before the pandemic. We did a community resi- resiliency model teacher training. And one of the individuals we were talking to, her name is Stephanie, she was sharing her joy in teaching the wellness skills to a group of people who were suffering. And when she was describing it to us, I don't know if you felt this way, I could feel tears welling up in my eyes, is that we often don't know, and I think this is what I'm really grateful for, that we may plant a seed in someone's life, and then we don't know how it sprouts and takes root and what comes from it. And I certainly hadn't spoken to them for many, many, many years. And to think that that has now continued to sprout and to continue to spread well-being to the point where they want more people trained to be able to teach this to their community. And they do beautiful work in New York City. So I'm grateful for those. And that's just one example. But I think you've, you've heard those moments too, Rena, yeah. when someone will say something to us. And I think, oh my gosh, how did that happen? That this little idea could spread and create so much well-being in the world. And Elaine, I'm wondering if you're able to notice anything that's happening on the inside. <laughs> well, I'm just noticing a, a big old smile and I just took a deep breath as well. Um, I think that that um, also, it's also connected to that first pillar that we talked about, because I think that when I'm grateful for that, it also gives me the perspective of like, okay, what, what else do I need to know about to gain more, a wider lens? So how this can also help more people. Because I think that's been one of my great missions in my life is, is how do we bring this forward? And I think your other question is about how to plan to integrate a great uh, gratitude practice in, in my life is that I actually just bought a little book that I think I'm going to be writing in every day and at least writing down three practices. And I thought I could also start talking to my granddaughter, who's five, a little bit more mm. about what she's grateful for. <laughs> Although I don't know what she'd say, but it might be she'd say, oh, Nana, stop talking to me. I'm grateful if you just stop talking. Who knows? <laughs> but we'll see what she has to say. But I think that, um, you know, I, I say that I'm grateful for that, but I'm grateful. I'm, I'm very grateful to a friend's house that I'm at right now. She's allowing me to have the podcast at her house as my house is being worked on. And she's been a dear friend to me. So I feel like she's a member of my family. 
And um, so I'm grateful for her and I'm grateful to you. So I'm also grateful to Matt, the engineer who always does a great job on Voice America. So I just have to have say that about him today too. So you see how you start, it's kind of like when you uh, start talking about gratitudes, it's like, oh my goodness, it's like you're out there and you're fishing and you get more and more and more and more yeah. as that net becomes fuller. So that's what yeah. I'm sensing right now. And it's actually making me feel very happy. So. <laughs> Thank you for that yeah, question. Of, of course. And, and, and isn't it so that just took a few minutes. And then isn't that incredible what that what happened in that well, shift? And so yeah, what a yeah. wise young woman you are. So are you, are, are, is there any particular way you're going to be working on your gratitudes this year? Ooh, I, I think I need to do a better job of, of continuing my practice. You know, there are mornings where I start and so I, I would like to just maintain and continue the the journaling, um, and you know something that they talk about in the book is being being as specific as possible and and not choosing the same things over again. And I thought that was interesting to try to choose different things because you really you know trying to cultivate that and push yourself to think about other things. And and for example, you know the meal on the table, you know the farmers that had to pick the food, you know the soil, all of the things, the gro- the grocers that had to put it stock it on the shelves, you know, I mean really getting specific. And I, I, I want to practice doing more of that as well. well I love that because I think that, you know, in the C learning program, the social, emotional, ethical learning program, they talked about systems thinking and helping children understand that like when they have, let's say a plastic water bottle in front of them, what went into creating all of that, yeah. right? So yeah. who put the water in the bottle? Who yeah. made the plastic? Where did the plastic come from? Was there a factory with the people that worked in the factory? Because if we think about that too, it's also connected to perspective. It also helps us think about, well, is that something I want to do? What happens to the plastic after I'm done with it, yeah. right? So am I, am I recycling? You see, it's, right. the, it's that yeah. system then that also looks at how we can change things yes. that may have been things that have been, are not going so well. Yeah. Like how do we not um, pollute our our oceans with right. too much plastic, right? Or even with food, it's, you know, who's impacted by the foods that we're eating? You know, the, these are foods that are coming in from other countries that are coming into our groceries. I mean, there's just so much conversation, like you said, Elaine, especially with young people that we can have around gaining that perspective. Um, but that's, yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll keep each other accountable and honest with our practices, I think. <laughs> All right. We're going to have to check. Out. Oh, I'm, gra- I'm grateful, Arena, that you called me today and reminded me to do my practice. Yes. <laughs> so how about the next pillar that we're going to talk about? This is the last pillar we'll talk about today, which is generosity. So it is the natural prolongation of compassion. And neuroscience now demonstrates that generosity is one of the four fundamental neural circuits uh, for long-term happiness. Generosity also boosts health and longevity. And I was, when I was reading the book, I thought it was so interesting that when, we, when someone is generous to us, when we're generous to someone else, or when we're watching generosity to others, that yeah. that same circuitry lights yeah. up. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is a very important thing yes. to cultivate. And the fact that we are designed, we're designed this way. That we have a circuit in our brain. A neural circuit means we have a circuit in our brain that is wired for happiness. So, And that's why if we practice it, it actually can get stronger. So there are so many non, let's say, nonprofit organizations, um, for example, that are naturally motivated to participate in a better world. I think that when we started the Trauma Resource Institute, that whole idea was 
How can we bring healing to the world one person at a time, keeping in mind people's cultural practices? Um, so in, in Buddhist teaching in the book, they talk about three forms of generosity. And, and we talked about this. Let's talk a little bit about this in relationship to our perspectives, um, Rena. So the first one was the material gift. The second was freeing from fear, which can be offered by protection, advice, consolation. And the third was the spiritual gift, gift, which is transmitting wisdom, moral, and ethical teachings, helping people towards more autonomy. Um, so when we think about that, uh, more autonomy and happiness, are there any thoughts that are coming to mind for you right now? Well, I'm not to be biased, you know, I know that the show is sponsored by the Trauma Resource Institute, but I also work there. And I, I, you know, when I read this piece about these are the three forms of, of generosity and giving, and I thought, oh my gosh, we do, this is, we do this. This is what we do. This is what we offer in the world. And in such a generous way, you know, whether it be in the form, Elena, you'd mentioned our scholarships, right? Our dedication to making sure that people um, are able to come to every every training that we can, you know, that we offer, um, free, freeing from fear, you know, and I thought that was so interesting that that can be um, a form of generosity, right? Something that we give to others. And I think about the wellness skills and what we do in our work um, and how many times I've been in a training and I've heard people say, that they can have more relief, they can live their life easier, right? Being free from some of those things that really help to keep them, you know, otherwise maybe trapped or in a place that they don't want to be. And that's also the spiritual gift of that transmitting wisdom, um, the moral and ethical teachings. And so I just, you know, get so excited by this because I think, um, you know, for me, this this really epitomizes what we do as an organization and as a nonprofit and the fact that we are so generous in, in what we have, that if there's anything that we have, we are we are so ready to give that. And Elaine, you've really been the pioneer in making sure that that yeah. happens. That's a value for us. You know, it has. And, I, and I've and i always felt that way. I shared a story with you. Um, many years ago, there was a, a person in a, in a state up north, I'll say up north from California, that um, we gave a scholarship to come to our training. And she was working on a, um, uh, a reservation with in indigenous children and and she needed a scholarship to be able to come to our training. So through a number of people, we were able um, to give her the scholarship. There are people that I think loaned her a car, she had a place to stay. And at that time in our, in our history, we didn't have a lot of extra money within the organization. But when she, I talked to her and the compelling work she was doing with children, I said, oh, we have to get her trained in these wellness skills. And so she came down. And then later, she had talked to people when she went back up to her state and was telling them about our generosity. And certainly, we didn't expect anything in return. We were just hoping it might help her with her work with children, that I received a $5,000 check in the mail from this amazing donor. And I'll never forget that. It's I, my mom used to say to me, you know, what you give out comes back to you a thousandfold. Mm. And that certainly has, has been true regarding the generosity of our organization. Um, and, and sometimes it hasn't necessarily come back in what we'd say a material, but in the, in even the um, idea that we talked about earlier of the Arab, Arab American family resource center and hearing that story of how, um, 
refugees who are coming from so many parts of the world into New York City are getting the benefit of cultivating their well-being in these very simple ways. So that is, um, I have to tell you that just that talk about, I'm going to have a smile from ear to ear, this one. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh my gosh, that's so wonderful. So generosity is is definitely something that um, is so embedded in what we do. But, you know, I want to go a little bit further. Um, when, When discussing the pillar, Desmond Tutu addresses a question from a young person in South Africa who asks how, how we can help the world heal and still feel joy in life. His response is to start where you are and realize that you are not meant on your own to resolve all these massive problems. Now, this is something you pulled out of the book, Rena. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, you know, and I think this is um, a, a great way, as I know that we're, we're ending today and, and talking about these pillars, um, that you know, that the, there was this question that really struck me, I think, as, as a social worker and as somebody, and I know a lot of your listeners can probably relate as somebody who does feel that interdependence very deeply with, fellow, with my fellow humans, um, you know, and I've grappled with this question a lot, especially after returning from India and, and working in some of the communities I have is how, how is it okay for me to experience joy in my life? when I know there's so much suffering, when I do ache deeply and I do know that there's a wider perspective and I do know that people are suffering and, and um, here I am, you know, in Arizona in the United States. And so when this young woman wrote this question in for his holy list, the Dalai Lama and for Desmond Tutu, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is something that I really need to pay attention to. So I, I put this here for us to discuss that, um, you know, his words, and this was actually Archbishop Tutu's words that start, start where you are. Um, and then to realize that you're not meant to resolve all of these things on your own, that we can do the, that really we can rely on one another um, to really help um, help the situation that this isn't we're just rely on one person's shoulders that we have a community of people. Um, and Elaine, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts around this, because to me, the work that you do really really does speak to this, that you have seen so much suffering in the world. I have. Um, I have and how do you maintain that perspective? Well, I think that I that sometimes it touches me so deeply that there is definitely sadness that I certainly will never want to lose that. But then there's also joy. And I I, I have I wrote about this in my book, but I, I think it's it's something that I would love to share again to our listeners. And I was in Haiti after the terrible earthquake of 2010. And we had stuck us a long, long time to get to this place we're going. We're going to a place that was um, um, being run by a nun. And and there were like literally, oh my gosh, there was maybe 200 people waiting in the really hot sun, had been waiting for hours for us, and yet they were waiting for us. So it was kind of like that, oh my gosh moment. I don't know what I'm going to say. So all of a sudden I thought, well, I'll just ask her if she'd like, you know, ask the group if there's something they'd like to start our meeting together. Um, and so this woman like raises her hand, she comes up in front of the group, and I would never have thought to do this after so many people had died, you know, 10% of the population died in Haiti after that earthquake. And many of you will know this, she, and I, she was singing in Creole, which I do not know how to speak, but I certainly knew what she was singing. And it was, la, 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 la. La 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 If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. The whole group was just up and dancing and clapping. And I have to tell you, there were tears. And at the very end, you're ready to leave after sharing the wellness skills and teaching them a little bit. 
the nun who ran the camp came up to me and gave me a big hug. And she said to the, to the translator, she goes, this is the first moment, first day being here with all of you that I've experienced joy again and felt that we were going to be able to go forward. And I thought that wasn't me. That was the people. It was asking that question and having the joy come forward that even with all the suffering, that they, there could be this moment of joy and collective happiness of a song, of a dance, and about community. And so as I see our time is slipping away, I really want to invite all of you to think about that with the sorrow that you are experiencing for whatever's happening in your life as we're starting this new year. Are there some ways that you can remember what else is true? We've been talking about that a lot on over the last year. But you know, think about your gratitudes. Is there someone that you can go and extend generosity to? And I want to thank my wonderful guest, Rena Patel, for being with me today and the generosity of who you are, Rena, in bringing this to the show today and sharing your wisdom. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say as we end today? Just, just expressing my gratitude to you, Elaine. Thank you so much um, for giving so many of us a voice and a platform and, and a way to express our thoughts and, and love for, for the things that we do. Thank you. Well, and I'm, this is one of the things I'm so grateful for is to have this opportunity for you to spread your thoughts and your wisdom to a broader audience so more people can know the person that I've known for many years and that can hear um, the pearls that you can share with us all. So, listeners, until we meet again, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing off for Resiliency Within with a deep bow of gratitude for Rena Patel. And just know that you can reach her through the Trauma Resource Institute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within, with host Elaine Miller-Karras, is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.